0: Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. Bringing the most out of your paid search, organic search and content excellence programs must be a group activity across all the teams and agencies responsible or brands risk wasting the investment in any one of them by underperformance in the others. Amanda Wolf, head of marketing at Flywheel Digital, joined Lauren Levack and me to detail the innovations she has been seeing among leader brands to ensure that these functions are operating more as one and less as three. So welcome to the podcast, Amanda Wolf. We are so excited about chatting with you today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, I mean, success on the digital shelf today really requires success in organic and paid search, plus optimized content on product pages. That's like the sort of the the core way to sort of combine everything for results. The difficulty is that not every organization brings all of those elements together successfully in order to achieve retail readiness, as you call it, and, and maximum performance. From your seat at Flywheel, you have access to data and insights how customers are moving towards retail readiness. Can you you share with us some of your observations?
1: So I think retail readiness is really a phrase that starts to scratch the surface of how retail media and the digital shelf are intrinsically linked in most of the retailer algorithms. Um, Another word that's commonly used to describe this is relevance. Um, But ultimately, it's how does the algorithm think about your product, and how does it decide if that product is the best suggestion to serve up for the customer? So, you know, we really talk about these concepts in a siloed way. We think about retail media like it's a standalone thing or um, content on a PDP like the product data alone is really driving that organic ranking independently. But in reality, all of it matters and all of it works together to fuel the flywheel, um, you know, my company, pun intended. I see Um, what you're doing there. I know, I'm so good at that way. No, I I give all credit where it's due to to Patrick and Chip for that name. Um, But, you know, ultimately, content is driving two things. It's driving the conversion that's from the consumer-driven behavior, right? It's merchandising that product in a way that the consumer wants to buy it. So it's that consumer-oriented piece, but it's also checking the box for the machine. And by that, I mean, that algorithm from the retailer that's crawling that content to see if your product is a match for what the consumers want to buy. So it's really that it's both fueled organic rank from the relevance and also where media is driving awareness for top of the funnel and traffic further down the funnel. So when you're really thinking about that flywheel, it's not just what's on the page, It's also the traffic that comes to that page. It's the conversion that happens off that page. Um, All of that stuff works together to drive that flywheel effect. And so, you know, traffic from media is feeding the algorithm and helping you rank higher organically, just like organic ranking is helping your relevance that impacts your media spend and your media placements.
0: So are there shifts that you're seeing happen to be able to sort of... uh try and get these things aligned or what's happening out there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's no surprise really, because retail media is where the focus is for most of the retailers. And I mean, I'm sure that your audience or your listeners have heard this ad nauseum. They've seen all that publicly shared data around Amazon ads and retailers really want a piece of that pie. So you know anybody working in manufacturers today is probably dealing with retailers who want more of your ad dollars. Mm. They're already, you may already be paying them, so they may not be net new. Um, but even if you are, they're probably adding more paid slots to their unit user interfaces um, in in terms of paid placements rather than just the earned placements that used to be there. So, you know, there's this perception that it's all pay to play. Um, But all that media proliferation really doesn't minimize the need for that organic work. It just changes it. So where you used to create really rich keyword focused and conversion focused content, those spots may not be getting nearly as much visibility as in the past. Um, However, those placements still matter because that's really how you win those top paid positions in the auctions at the lowest cost. So because, you know, the more relevant you are on those retailers, the less you pay per click, um, really these two concepts are kind of intrinsically linked and there's still a lot of siloing that's happening around that. But what we're seeing is more and more retailers are also holding brands accountable for readiness as they've also invested in more of their media placements, right? And so they do that in the form of content scorecards, which I know, you know, the team at Salsify is like intimately familiar with this idea of scorecarding, right? And making sure that you've got all your content assets in place. But what that doesn't really do is shine the light on the negative impacts of not being reviewed, not being really viewed as being relevant um, in terms of media performance. So there's this, I think it's an interesting way to start looking at your team structures and ways to start thinking about how to break down those silos so that your media performance and your content and digital shelf health performance are all kind of put together in the same, in the same bucket because you have to pay to play with retail media proliferation, Um, but you also can't easily buy your way out of bad relevance or not being retail ready.
2: And would you say, Amanda, that you've seen a shift recently with the maturity of e-commerce in general to say people have gone from like a compliance approach to like checking the box, presence of this, presence of that, to like, how do we measure readiness and effectiveness to actually holistically look at what we're doing on the digital shelf. Would you say that's really the
1: shift you've seen? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the goal. But I don't think, I think we're still in the beginning of that journey to get there. And a big part of that is there's a lot of noise about how to isolate what is working, Um, You know, you may have things happening with your competitor or average selling price goes up or down. How does that impact it? And so there's a lot of signals that are there. You know, we're doing our best to isolate that. And and we've got some pilots running now that allow us to really start measuring effectiveness, which is really exciting. Um, You know, but a lot of brands are still kind of looking at it from a compliance standpoint. And you mentioned silos. So one of the
2: biggest challenges for retail readiness is ownership. And it might sit with multiple different teams and they might have different approaches and it might not be holistic. So how are you seeing the organizations really break down those silos and bring those teams together to be able to paint a picture of retail readiness?
1: Million dollar question. Right. Really, right. (laughs) I mean, a lot of them still have a long way to go to be candid. And I think that There's a lot of ways they can start though. And so what I've given, you know, different clients that I've worked with advice around is start simple, start with something like keyword sharing. You know, there's a reason that a lot of these organizations are specializing and that you're working with a media agency or a content agency or a video, you know, there's there's a reason that they're specializing. And I think that it makes a lot of sense for them to do so. You need people who can go really, really deep. But the more connectivity that you can have between your agencies or your internal teams, the better. And so I would start really light. Start with something like keywords. What terms are you bidding on? You know, what about organic search data in your long tail terms? Um, It's really a simple place to start, but even that's really complicated when you think about large portfolios and diverse categories. So, you know, Flywheel Content Studio, we've got keyword data and even marrying that data from, let's say, organic Panel data um, and then mapping that with um, advertising data or what you might get out of ARAP in terms of keywords. Shoot, even now you can put in to Chat GPT, I want keywords for this product, and it'll spit ideas out to you. So all of those are options, but then the complication really comes with mapping those keywords to your attributes. And I think that's where companies like us can help do that at scale. you can still do it yourself with a spreadsheet if you just have like all of your skus and all of the attributes that are really most important for those skus and then think through that that mapping exercise for those different keyword sets that you have so that then you can have really a kind of a golden list sku by sku um brand by brand even that you can use and share with your agencies and your content teams because you know what we often see is a lot, of, a lot of brands haven't really thought through how to strategize their portfolio related to the keywords that they choose. Maybe every single SKU is going after the same keywords organically, when in reality, if you look at the landscape first, map it to your product second, then you can really start looking for opportunities both in media and in content and in the two together for the keywords you really want to win on for that particular subset of SKUs.
0: Amanda, I appreciate you offering a spreadsheet as an option, but just <laughs> <laughs> I think you know it's a good way to sort of play around. But I, you know, uh, I think I think we all know that the the scale and the ability to keep up with the algorithm is a tough thing to do in a spreadsheet um, if you're going to get any other work done. So I, I'm I'm just being a pal because we, we this spreadsheet is sort of a dirty word on this program. <laughs> I <just wanted> to, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, but we want people to take advantage of what's available to them yeah. to, make sure to make progress. Yeah. But ultimately, in the kind of environment that we're talking about, I mean we all hear of it, like automation is going to be a key attribute to be able to sort of stay up with the crowd, if not win leadership in your category.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right.
2: And Amanda, do you have an example of maybe how a company has successfully broken down a silo or pushed some
1: teams together in a positive way to to work together? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that, where that really comes into play are a lot of those interagency teams, IATs, and a lot of organizations have started doing that, which is really, really great. And it's a good first step. So, but what I'm also finding with a lot of those meetings is that they often come with like, these are the things I've done for you. This is my scorecard. And then now I'm going to turn it over to my social agency and they're going to say what we provided this month. And then I'm going to go to this one. And really the, it's a great first step, but how do you take it to the next level? And I think that the way that you do that is thinking through a concept that I like to call triggers. And so if you start mapping out the triggers in your organization where you need change, where you need some sort of response to happen, whether it's from your media agency responding to something that's changed in the competitive landscape or in your content, or maybe it's your social team running a campaign and they've got a lot of influencer content. Those are really good opportunities to surface and have shared plans, action plans around those triggers. So your IATs can then take it back and say, when we hear in the IAT that this is happening, this is what we should do as a response. And that might be category by category, skew by skew. um, But there are a lot of opportunities out there. For example, you you may have a social influencer team who's creating really good content. But because in the social influencer language of their contract, that that imagery is not owned by the company and can't be used in other places, or it can only be used for X rights. And something as simple as just changing the language in that contact up front allows you then to have your content team be able to access all of that really great imagery from your social team and use that in their PDPs, especially if it's starting to drive conversion, right? So those are just some examples, I think, of ways that You know, the more that you can drop those walls and get teams to come together, you don't necessarily want to have um, less specialization. You need those experts, whether they're in one agency or six. But the key is just to get everybody not just sharing updates, but also working together collaboratively around a structure.
0: Have you seen... The process for building out like a core list of triggers, like, is that something the client usually comes sort of here? I bake this up, do so. Or is it really a conversation around the table about what's going to drive us? What do we want to stay uh, aware of or in touch with so that we're taking advantage of opportunities or where we're being dinged. Is it that kind of conversation?
1: Yeah, I think it is the latter. It's really working collaboratively because I think a lot of brands may not necessarily know what the triggers should be. I think they're looking to their agency partners, their Mm -hmm. consultancies to say, what are the things that we can change about our business that are going to move things forward quickly? And so, yeah, I, I typically would go in and say, here's some examples, but let's start and let's figure out who owns what parts of this and operationalize this. And it takes getting your hands dirty, um, but it really is building that framework for scale. You know, to your point earlier about everybody's looking for automation, this is a great example of that, right? You have to build the machine to have muscle memory. And in this case, the machine is all of those experts that you're pulling together at a manufacturer from all these disparate places and saying, we're going to build the machine now about how we interact with each other in a different way.
0: I love that. You know, one component of that is usually um, blowing up your KPI structure and, and resetting it for shared incentives that above maybe individual incentives of each area, there's what are we all trying to drive towards that each of us has a piece of And then, how do we reward people for reaching those incentives? Are you seeing that kind of behavior in this context?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's still a lot of people holding on to, I'm going to say, legacy KPIs, right? I mean, brand teams are always going to be um, looking for impressions and how they can drive awareness um, and engagement across their portfolio of products. But in the end, when you see investor relations reports, They're not necessarily talking about how many clicks they got on social, right? They're not necessarily talking about ROAS. They're talking about sales and they're talking about share. And so the more you can incentivize teams in an organization around shared KPIs that are really um, about effectiveness of your efforts and not around completeness, And checking the box or incompleteness, like I talked about before, I think the more you can motivate those teams together collectively to to get the change that you need done. So for example, if media is only incentivized on ROAS, um, maybe they're not necessarily looking at conversion alone. ROAS is still important. It's a guardrail, it's an important guardrail, but it can also mislead people into taking credit for the sun rising. So things like, you know, (laughs) I know, right? But like think about it, if you're bidding on your branded term. If I'm if I'm Tylenol and I'm bidding bidding on Tylenol, I'm probably going to have really great ROAS for Tylenol. But if you're winning organically for Tylenol, then think about a way that you can let your listing, your organic placement, do its job and shift away some of that budget, right? And so, um, you know, looking at your sales and share is really the best way to know if what you're doing is working. Um, but more tactically you know, we also like to look at things like incrementality for that reason, not incrementality in terms of new shoppers, but in terms of, you know, increasing visibility for products that maybe would not have been seen otherwise. Um, And so, you know, looking at those two things together, then that's when you can start getting that one-two punch related to media and content effectiveness and digital shelf to get more out of your dollars and make your budget work better for you. So if your content is performing better and you're better ranked organically, your CPCs are going to go down. Um, And so you can use that money and channel that to lift other SKUs that may be hidden on page three or four.
0: It's so complicated though, right? Because, uh, and you tell me if this is not true. I don't know if anyone ever got fired for buying their own branded term or, or maybe they have, but I think largely it really takes some diligence. And I would imagine some senior leadership to reset those in a way that gives somebody cover because let's say you don't buy your branded term for a while and something maybe goes amiss for a bit. You want good behavior to be encouraged, even if, you know, there's, you know, intervening small moments of fear or something.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I still think, you know, there's absolutely scenarios where you want to, you still want to bid on your branded terms. And there are some retailers that allow for conquesting and others that don't. And so some of it is a defensive play as well as, you know, other brand opportunities, maybe, you know, it might be around DSP and some spend on display or something like that as well. So, I mean, I think it can't necessarily be one size fits all. And I know Lauren and I right. talk about that endlessly, but, um, you know, you have to really view your competitive landscape and your category pretty carefully before you can make those strategic determinations. But then you're right, Peter. I mean, once, you, once you've once you landed on strategy, then I think you have to have the chutzpah, to stick it out and, and to see, you know, how things are performing and also be willing to have somebody that you trust on the, with hands on keyboard to make those pivots when things don't work. I mean, we're, we're in an age of test and learn, and we always will be, but, um, you know, I think you've got, you've also got to have that conviction to stand with the strategies that you're trying to implement.
2: I also think that's a good point though, Amanda, that you have to have someone who's owning it, right? Like you, this can't be, part of someone's job. And when you think about organic and paid, that has to be under the same roof to be able to have the conversation to connect all of those dots. So like really investing in a resource because it takes so much time to monitor this. Like it changes more frequently in some categories than others, but if you don't invest in the person as well as the technology and build the process to be able to set it up, it's just not going to be That's right. I mean,
1: if you've got specialists that are doing the good work, you need them to still do the good work. But I would also advocate that there needs to be somebody bringing that good work together, or people are going to continue to kind of fall down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole of their job, and not and not really think about the larger picture, which is: Are we driving sales? Are we driving share? What do we need to do differently to win against our competitors? How can we improve our effectiveness of our media spend? How can we make our conversions um, greater and win more in our in our competitive landscape?
2: And when you're thinking about effectiveness, so measuring effectiveness is not the way that we've done historically measuring the digital shelf. So it's a different way of measurement. It's a different way of thinking. So can you talk about how you define effectiveness and why it's so important and what metrics you think are most valuable to look at effectiveness?
1: Yeah. I mean, I really, I love that question. It's so hard and it's So simple at the same time, but really, I mean, looking at your content or your reviews or anything to bring in performance and not just checking the box. So a really great example that surfaced recently is around video. You know, I know from the retailers like Target in particular requires video in their content scorecards. A lot of pundits have been talking about the importance of video and driving higher conversion and higher ranking. But what does that really mean in terms of that video's effectiveness for that particular PDP? And I think that's where measurement tools sometimes don't really give us what we need. And we're having to, you know, use data scientists to help help us get there. Um, you can work with agencies to do that or your own. but if you you know if you have a commercial for your chocolate, let's just use that as an example, and that features in that commercial. There's a lot of chocolate chips that are in that video, and you decide to use that for your entire portfolio, so that you can say, "Hey, Target, I'm putting a video up here now." I've heard from all of these um, providers that having a video is going to increase my conversion. Um, that's awesome, but it include you included that same video on chocolate bar skus. Um, What is that going to do from a shoppability standpoint? Is it going to confuse the consumer because confusion kills conversion, right? So is that something that's really going to help you or not? I've seen some data that reinforces that says that video doesn't, doesn't get looked at that much, but when it does, it really drives conversion. The conversion goes way up, but that it doesn't get looked at as often. So when you think about that use case and you think about the type of video that you need, to be using in that scenario for that use case it should be something for somebody who didn't get what they needed from your content up front and had to go a little deeper and when they went deeper was it a brand advertisement or was it something that was really meaty that answered a question those are really difficult just to measure that effectiveness is is challenging i mean like i said your data scientists can help you with that we've got that in place now But ultimately, the reality is, is unless you dig deeper into those metrics, looking skew by skew, brand by brand at conversion, once you've made a change to an asset, um, it does become very hard. Now, A-B tests exist. So, you know, that's another opportunity, too. But, you know, I just think it's really important that we are really clear about the difference between correlation and causation. Did having the video improve the conversion and ranking of those top SKUs that all just were investing a ton of money and pulling out in the stops for their content anyway that would have ranked no matter what. Or was it something that having that, that asset really did improve that conversion rate? And so you have to isolate all those variables to be able to do that. You and I talk about KNPs a lot. It's not necessary for every KNP company out there to have 14 images and to have six videos. But if you're in a competitive landscape, especially consumer electronics, that could be really, really important for you to make sure that you're answering all those unanswered questions. So, you know, shameless plug you and I have that ebook that talks about that concept in more detail.
2: And it's on the digitalshelfinstitute.org under the partner section.
1: Yay.
0: And I just want to be clear, Amanda, you and I have never discussed can peas, so it must be with Lauren that you Yes, we have K&Ps. actually
1: talked about can peas a lot, so that was definitely me. <laughs> yes, Lauren and I have talked a lot about can peas.
0: I don't want to take credit for uh can peas. Um uh, Amanda, the the thank you so much for bringing the, this data and perspective to our audience. I think this is one of the you know, there's so many places to unlock value in a greater value and performance in the work we do on the digital shelf. But combining, or I don't know whether combining is the right term, but putting these areas together really tightly and making each team members aware of how each impacts the others and, and driving your partners in that effort to be accountable for the stuff that really matters. I think this is one of the great areas of improved efficiency and greater performance that everyone needs today to drive increased profitability on the digital shelf. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love geeking out about this stuff.
0: Well, thank you. We love your geekness. And you can get more (laughs) of it either at flywheeldigital.com or just hit Amanda up on LinkedIn. Amanda, as you would expect, and then Wolf, W-O-L-F-F. I just want to be sure. You got it. Get that. So thanks again, Amanda. It was great. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thanks again to Amanda for joining us. As always, more info is available at digitalshelfinstitute.org when you become a member. It's free for God's sake. Thanks for being part of our community.